Good to have you with us today. Welcome to BIB Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Tyler Orton. Later on today's show, BIB's weekly tech panel will discuss the future of the World Wide Web and what ride-hailing delays mean for BC's reputation. And BIB is once again looking to recognize BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and non-profit sectors who are ahead of their time and, of course, of a certain age. Nominations for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards are closing July 30th. Visit BIB.com events for details. A wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies are making payments and transactions easier for businesses. On September 13th, BIV's FinTech panel will have a look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. Tickets and information are available at BIV.com slash events. Coming up next, we're going to speak to Kevin Milligan. He's an economics professor at the University of British Columbia. We're going to talk about potential tax reform here in Canada and how we might be able to stay competitive with the United States. A recent OECD report suggests that Canada review its overall tax system in order to ensure that it's remaining competitive in the face of U.S. corporate tax cuts that were implemented this year. Now, perhaps in response to that this week, we also heard from Canadian Finance Minister Bill Morneau that there may potentially be something by way of tax reform in Canada's upcoming fall budget update. It was more of a hint than a full commitment. That's something we're going to be watching for. And on the line with us today from Boston is Kevin Milligan. He's a professor of economics at the University of British Columbia, a frequent writer concerning tax issues in Canada and beyond. Kevin, thanks for joining us on the show. Happy to be here. Now, you have covered this exact issue, and one of the questions you've posed before is whether we should respond to U.S. corporate tax cuts at this stage. Do you think that something needs to be done at the federal level? I do think there is a case for some kind of response, but we do have to be careful in understanding that the fiscal policy that's been pursued by the Trump administration is pushing them over 5% of a deficit-to-GDP ratio. In Canada, we have a deficit to GDP ratio that's under 1%, and some people are, are even concerned with that low level. But if we're going to you know, match the Trump administration fiscal policy on the tax side, you have to be worried about what it would do on the deficit side as well. That said, I do think there is some room to improve our corporate tax system. And the way it could be improved is to make sure that we are focused on providing the best possible tax incentives for investment. So improvements could be made, but is there a concern, though, that politically we could end up in a race to the bottom? Yeah, that's why, uh, you know, there is some concern about uh, our overall corporate tax rate and how that compares to the U.S. We did have a very large tax advantage compared to the U.S. in terms of the rate. Uh, Now that has been eliminated. Uh, They're approximately the same in Canada and the U.S., the overall tax rate now. So one argument is that we should, you know, leapfrog back over top of them uh, to regain our tax advantage. The problem with that is it would be very costly to our Treasury to do so, most likely. And I'm not sure that's the race we want to get into. That's why instead of playing that game of trying to match their tax rate, which may go, you know, up again in the future or down again in the future, that we focus on what's good for the Canadian economy. And that is 
focusing our tax system about what we want out of our corporate sector, which is investment in future capacity to grow the economy. And there are ways that we can do that. Mm-hmm. Can you outline for us some of those ways that wouldn't, as Tyler pointed out, wouldn't constitute a race to the bottom, but would, as you're suggesting, create a more favorable climate for perhaps sustainable longer term investments? Yeah, when we think about what it is we want corporations to do for our society, the main thing is we want them to organize our investments in future capacity. And my view is that we should build our tax system in the way we tax corporations around that same principle. And the best way to do that, I, given our current tax system, is to move in the direction of front-loading the current tax incentives we have for investment. So right now, when you make a long-term investment, you there's some kind of depreciation schedule. You get to write off that investment over a number of years. So if you buy a truck, if you invest in computers, you invest in other things, you have to write that off slowly over a depreciation schedule over a number of years. An alternative is to allow full expensing in year one. What that means is that the company, if they spend a million dollars updating their truck fleet, they can deduct that million dollars, not over the space of a number of years, but instead deduct it all in year one. What that does is it front loads the tax incentives to invest. And what that can do is to provide a, uh, you know, an optimized tax incentive for investment, which again is what we want our tax system to do, to be focused on investment in the future capacity of our economy. So let's line up our tax system with what we want corporations to be doing. Well, going forward, though, I mean, there were some surprises back in February when changes weren't made to the tax system that uh, Canada had after you know the December rates changes that we saw down in the United States. Do you think the Canadian government just does not want to be hasty with any decisions? Do you think that they are taking the time to think about this in a cautious manner, not you know very much surface level, we're just going to match everything the United States is doing? Do you think that's why there's been a bit of a delay here? Yeah, I think uh, they are being cautious and being reflective on their approach, and I, I think that's good. I mean, there was a bit of a debate about how much focus there should have been back in the budget, and, you know, there were perhaps too few words in there of concern. But in the time since then, the finance minister has uh, said a number of times that this is a priority. As you mentioned in your introduction, uh, it looks like this will be a feature of the fall fiscal update we'll see in a few months. And, you know, I think they focus on studying the issue, trying to figure out how we can make it uh, meet a sustainable fiscal policy so that we don't end up, like the United States, heading towards 5 or 6% of a, a deficit to GDP ratio, which is what we don't want. Um, can we do something that both helps uh, corporations with their goal to invest in their future of their uh, capacity with something that's fiscally sustainable? And in my view, the best way to do that is to think about uh, you know, front-loading the incentives to invest through allowing immediate uh, expensing of investment. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to get your take on this too, Kevin. I mentioned the OECD report at the top, and, and one of the highlights well featured in that report is the fact that we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. And I'm, I'm curious when we're talking about investments and how corporations choose to invest, where they choose to invest, whether maybe right now companies are actually withholding investment if they can, altogether so that they don't have to choose, say, between Canada and the U.S., because in the U.S., too, there's quite a bit of uncertainty about what's going on within the borders and also what's going on between the U.S. and almost pick any country, if you will. 
Yeah, there's always going to be uncertainty with respect to policy, you know. On another front, on the immigration front, it's difficult for firms who want to try to bring in some um, awesome talent from abroad uh, into the United States. There's lots of uncertainty about what kind of immigration status there will be have uh, in the future as well. You know, in Canada, we've taken a different path on that. And, and the same is true on taxes. We don't know the future path of taxes. Right now, the tax rate, corporate tax rate in the U.S. is low and, and, and comparable to Canada. We don't know what a future Congress, a future president might do. And, you know, if I were to guess, I'd say that if the Democrats were ever to take control of Congress and the White House again, one of the first things they might do is to reverse some part of those corporate tax cuts. So mm -hmm. there's always uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future. So I, I just think we have to focus on, um, you know, on what's happening in Canada first and what we can do to optimize our tax system. Um, and given the constraints we have, we want to have a sustainable fiscal policy and we want to make sure that corporations are uh, what we are, are uh, you know, providing them incentives to do with our tax system lines up with what we want corporations to be doing in society, which is investing. So I think that's a strong case can be made for this kind of tax reform, independent of what's going on in the U.S., but certainly the impetus to do it and the, and the, the case to do it is stronger given that the tax bill did pass and that these incentives are now in place in the United States. We've spent about eight months not really responding to it. And I'm wondering, though, do we have the option of just ignoring what the Americans have done down south of the border? That's certainly an option that is on the table. Again, you can wonder about sustainability of what they've done. At the top of the business cycle, they have a very large deficit. So it, 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 you do wonder about the sustainability. So maybe we just wait for them to come back down to earth. Um, that's one possibility. But for me, what uh, is a real motivator is thinking about um, you know, the incentives to invest in uh, plant machinery equipment, new trucks for your fleet, new equipment for your employees. In the U.S., that is now fully expensable in the first uh, in, in year one um, for many classes of assets. And in Canada, we don't have that. So that's a, a one element of the choice of where you might want to invest that I think we could consider matching. And if we didn't do that, you could imagine firms, that might be tech firms, that might be uh, all kinds of firms who might make, make their marginal investment decision stateside rather than in Canada. A final question for you, Kevin, before we let you go. Of course, we have our own election federally coming up next year, and I imagine there are going to be many issues on the table. A deficit tends to be one issue that comes about, and so do taxes, not necessarily corporate taxes, but taxes generally. Is there a way for the Liberal government to not run a bigger deficit, but also maybe meet the needs of businesses and corporations that have said, look, we need something to be done on the tax file? Yeah, as an economist, my biggest concern is to have a stable fiscal policy that is sustainable in the long run. And the best way to measure that is our debt to GDP ratio, which right now is stable and coming down slightly. Now, perhaps it's not coming down uh, you know, quickly enough, given that the economy is growing right now. We'd maybe like to see that come down a bit more quickly. But uh, you know, uh, the fairly small deficit we have right now in the order of 15 to $20 billion is less than 1% of our economy. And again, mm -hmm. in contrast, it's over 5% in the US. So uh, you know, relative to other countries in the world, other OECD countries, other G7 countries, our federal budget deficit situation is uh, very sustainable. So I don't have any large concerns about that. But that said, it does really put a constraint on 
I, you know, the election goodie packages that the different parties are putting together, if you're going to expand spending, if you're going to offer a lot of tax cuts, uh, it's hard to do that maintaining uh, the fiscal sustainability framework that we have in place. So like I said, right now, um, given the current level of the deficit, our debt to GDP ratio is approximately stable, going down slightly, but there's not a lot of room to maneuver there. If you offer big tax cuts or big new spending programs, that's going to hurt the long run sustainability of our fiscal policy. And so I think we're going to see a lot of debate about that as the election approaches. Mm -hmm. And we'll have to watch, of course, for what happens in the fall fiscal update. But for now, Kevin, really appreciate you joining the show. Thanks for your insight. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Kevin Milligan joining us on the line from Boston. He's a professor of economics at the University of British Columbia. Well, stay with us. We're going to speak to our tech panel next with Ali Pordad and Amiel Lake. We have at least one more year of guests and visitors from out of town trying and failing to hail an Uber in Vancouver. Yes, yeah, at, We're going, least. <laughs> at least. We're going to talk about what ride hailing delays mean for BC's reputation with our weekly tech panel. And we'll also have a look at PayPal privacy concerns and the future of the World Wide Web. We're joined in studio by Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa. And on the line, Amiel Lake, entrepreneur in residence, at E at UBC. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Let's start with the PayPal story. Some of the 7 million monthly active users sending payments through the app to friends, and the app, of course, is owned by PayPal, may have been surprised to learn that their transaction details are public by default. Now, the amount is not public, but who they are, who they're sending it to, what they're sending it for is. And my question, Ali, is why? Why make financial transaction data public by default? Yeah, I was surprised to, to actually read this. I, I guess I'm not as up to speed on some of the technologies in the US as I thought. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I, I don't know why people would want to disclose uh, where they're spending their money to just the general world. I guess if there's a way, if I mean, if there is a way for Venmo to use that information to uh, you know, uh, pass that information on to retailers and restaurants and, and maybe uh, create a be some sort of financial benefit for the consumer, then that, I can see that making sense. But beyond that, I have, uh, I don't, I, I can't tell. Yeah, Amiel, it seems like kind of a, a strange version of the proud consumer. <laughs> yeah, it, it sure does. I, I, it's all, I mean, Venmo's mission is essentially to enable more sharing of information. So you can better interact with your friends, but I I agree that at the transactional level, I don't I don't really understand why that's so important for the rest of the world to know. And when you look at the applications or the the story that this reporter was able to tell based on going through the transactions of certain individuals, it, it really tells a lot about a person's habits, and it, it's really quite creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah no kidding. Maybe, Ellie, maybe this is the precursor of the absolute open source uh, <laughs> uh, transaction of the world where we, we no longer will have to hide our details of our credit mm. card numbers. We're just going to have the all out there. Like, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Hack me. You know, there, I, 
Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that like in Kate's Fear or movie? Was it Silence <laughs> of the Lambs? It was a movie. It was a, of the horror genre. Yeah. You know, our receipts and the garbage and was able to tell a lot of the person. It really feels a bit like that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see that the government uh, earlier this year already already filed a sort of a privacy complaint mm-hmm. slash concern uh, on on this company and 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 it's also it's just also interesting to see that paypal is the company behind this company and it's driving mm-hmm. uh, a lot of its uh strategy yeah um, that, that's not the pal i want when i pay no it's like <laughs> i'm okay yeah. yeah no not at all but ali you you raise an interesting point it was the ftc filing a legal filing that sort of made paypal and venmo sort of fess up and make it very clear to consumers that look it is public by default and here's how you change it, which spurred a lot of this outrage. And I'm curious, Samuel, where does that sort of leave us in this debate around accountability, transparency, if it took essentially a legal challenge to get the company to be more forthcoming with how the platform operates? Well, it's, I, I, I feel like I always have the same answer to this question, which is absolutely the companies need to be accountable. The government needs to put in clear policy and regulations to hold companies to account and to uh, police and regulate appropriately and the consumers need to be made as aware as possible and they need to take on that responsibility themselves as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this one goes a step beyond the company because the company has made it very clear that their mission is to release this information. So really, I think it goes beyond, it's beyond their responsibility. It's the government's responsibility at some level. But was it also the, the user's to... responsibility? Should, shouldn't a user really start reading the 43 pages of disclosure <laughs> material? Print. Uh, <laughs> seven is, point font print. Yeah, yeah it, it, you know, at some point, aren't we obliged to start reading this stuff? You know, I think the public has this um, this trust level for companies like Netflix and companies like Amazon and companies like PayPal. PayPal is included in that list. You know, I think there's just a general uh, public trust, and uh, so maybe there's a just a different expectation when you're dealing with these companies. You maybe you feel like you can share your information and it's safe with them, or they're going to use it for your benefit. Uh, often that is the case. You know, you give Google all kinds of information, and and they try to make life good for you. Um, Maybe that's maybe that's what's going on here. I, I have to do a little bit more digging, but on the on the face of it, it seems very creepy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it is, you're right. I like to point out it is sort of their their idea behind this. It's meant to be a social app, although there's some challenges with that. And let's move to sort of a, another kind of social platform. It's called Solid. Going in the other direction. The other direction right. in a very radical way. It's being imagined by Tim Berners-Lee, founder of the World Wide Web. He was recently profiled in Vanity Fair and quoted as saying he was devastated by how the web is being used, built upon for corporate profit. Solid is sort of a response to that. You can control your data, control your content. I'm by no means an expert on this, and it's being created by uh, researchers at MIT. So it is next level. But I'm sort of curious whether it's possible to have a, a free public space where there's no corporate control, where you own everything. It sounds idyllic. Yeah. I mean, Emil, we've talked a lot in recent years about a kind of an ultra net, something that is a little bit of uh, a secure private space for those yeah, that have a different value system, perhaps. Uh, is this is this what we're starting to see with what Berners Lee is up to here? Absolutely, it's like the anti-social network or the unsocial network. And I 
I really love this idea. And if anyone can make this happen, <clears throat> it's Tim Berners-Lee, I hope. Um, but yes, we do need to get to a place where we have privacy and control mm. over our information. And quite frankly, I think that's what businesses ultimately want. And we get it that that may not necessarily be aligned with their short-term revenue aspirations. Um, but the idea that you can connect with consumers, that consumers can have this place where their information is shared and they only consume content, they only go to places on the internet where they want to go, where it's personalized to their choices, that sounds like a very productive use of the internet. All right, Ali's body language I, suggests he I might just, have another thought here. Well, I, I just I just wonder and like worry. A, like a hippie? <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's a, they're very good points, Samuel, and I just wonder and worry if it's too late. Like, mm -hmm. I wonder and worry that, you know, I, I was looking looking at the, the website, Solid, it's at solid.mit.edu, uh, mm -hmm. and I was doing a little bit of research on them, and, you know, they're building their entire infrastructure on the Amazon AWS cloud. Yeah. So... You know, that's that, isn't that sort of like, isn't it too late? Like if the whole thing is being built on AWS and Amazon is the ultimate like person above AWS, isn't the whole thing, isn't this just moot? Oh, what do you mean? Are, do they not have our interests this thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it, 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 isn't this just... Well, as long the, as they're Amazon Prime, right? It's true. Just don't raise the prices too much. Isn't this just a little bit like the 1970s where, we, uh, you know, older people began to get gated communities. It, it's, it, this, this is just a little bit like this. There no? should be gated communities on the internet. I don't see why not. And I think maybe it won't take over the internet, but this idea that you can craft your own private space, I think there's room for that. And, and I don't know how they work around AWS or what kind of regulation or business alignment that they craft. But I, I think it's possible because it's needed. Yeah, at, at the at the at the sort of the software level, it makes a whole lot of sense. This is really what blockchain brings to the world. It's a decentralized, you know, uh, bring the power back to the the people and the masses sort of software solution. But I just worry that the infrastructure it's too late, and the infrastructure that this would be sitting on is it's already sort of now in the hands of large business, and it's not going to be decentralized. It's in fact, it's maybe just going to benefit them more. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, too, uh, to the idea of having a gated community, if you really wanted to have your data in an enclosed space, have it secured and controlled by you, you need all the services you would use to be available on that platform. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. And they are building it that way. I mean, they are they are encouraging people to come onto the platform, start to build applications, uh, start to uh, test the test the uh, the platform, and and be a part of the solution. And, and, and we'll see if they we'll see if they can actually attract people. And Emil, there's there's maybe a larger question in here, and I'm trying to sort it out in my mind. But we were talking a little bit before the show started about about the uh, the ethos of this, the the you know the, whose value system are we really talking about here? It sounds you know, you've said earlier. You sound like a hippie, but the, the truth is that there is a little bit of that feeling to it, which is, you know, power to the people and back to the roots and all those kinds of things. But in a large part of the world, the internet isn't necessarily about, you know, about commerce anyway. It is trying to be something that is helping people with their social networks, with their capacity to learn about each other and to, and to, to conduct business and, and to advance their way of life. So who's, whose value system do you think we're, we're going to be buying into here with solid. Well, I, you know, I feel like somewhere in here there's 
a Star Wars quote was like, with great responsibility comes, you know, I, I forget the quote. <laughs> Star Wars or anyway. Spider-Man? <laughs> Spider-Man, right, it was yeah, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Like, I was just fine. I need to bone up on my Good, uh, my good, good, no, uh, good problem. Good sci-fi. catch there, Ali. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I, I think that it, it is about power over your own data and discretion over your own data. You know, Tim Berners-Lee puts this very eloquently um, in that he had never intended that people would all of a sudden have all their data exposed. I mean, we see this with Venmo, all of their data exposed to people that could use that in nefarious ways from who, you know, the members of their family, the age of their children, their personal address, you know, when they went to their cannabis store or purchased their pizza in the middle of the night, right? All of this data, no one had, he hadn't intended that that data be available. And I do think that there ought to be a place where that data stays safe because for um, all the wonderful benefits that you get from connecting and access to information, I don't think it's a fair trade that you get spied on. Uh, and, and and Kirk, you know, it, it is a very good point. I mean, in the, the article itself, he I think the quote is, he, he quotes it as the destroyer of the worlds. And is it, I mean, is the internet really, has the internet really destroyed the world? I think for parts you of know, the world. Maybe some parts. Parts, parts mm-hmm. of the world, it feels like it is uh, excessively intrusive. Yeah. Parts of the world might feel that it is sharing, oversharing. Parts of the world are resistant. But parts of the world are, a lot of value. Are, are quite honestly, can't wait to expand it. Yeah. I mean, so, I agree. so again, it's, it's all dependent on your situated knowledge. Yeah. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Sure. I'm sure For we'll sure. be talking more about solid in the, uh, the months and years to come as they fully launch. But our final story today, of course, is ride hailing in BC and the BC government released a report on modernizing the province's taxi industry to pave the way for ride hailing legislation and ride hailing competition. But this comes with uh, at least another year of delay. We have so many people who come to our <laughs> studio here <laughs> and from out of town. And, and after they're done, Ugh. they're they're playing with their smartphones going, hey, do you guys have an internet problem yeah. here? Because I can't seem to get my <laughs> Uber app to work. And we have and to it, tell it, them. No, it'll be a couple more years before that Uber app works here. We'll it's call never, you a cat. It's never coming. It's you, never coming. You don't think it's it? No. 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 no it's never coming. It's, it's just disgraceful. I, you know, 10 years 10 years after San Francisco yeah. introduced Uber, we, March still, don't 2009. Have it. we mm-hmm. still don't have it. And we were one of the first we cities talk- outside of San Fran to have Uber for a very brief period of time. And I, you we know, just living it. on the West Coast, you, you, this is a West Coast sort of thing. Like, you, you got to have Uber. I just got back from Toronto. I, 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 I just simply can't live without it. Yeah. It's like Starbucks never came here. Yeah. Like that, it has yeah. the same sort of feel. I mean, are, are you a big fan of ride hailing? Oh, yes. I was just in Houston two weeks ago, and we Ubered everywhere, and it was so convenient. The service was so wonderful. I just don't understand why Vancouver sees itself as so incredibly unique that it needs to reinvent the wheel, and that it's simply you know way too complex of a city, you know, more complex than New York or Paris. Uh, that, you know, Uber is a really hard thing to implement. I, I don't get it. Well, I, I, I wrote this week in BIB that the, the elephant that's always in the room is the political clout of the taxi industry. And mm-hmm. it is, uh, it's pretty astonishing in this city. But I've been in other cities where the taxi business is yeah. it can't be any full of clout yeah. there too. It can't be any bigger than other cities. New and, York, and frankly, Toronto. I mean, they, they all have very formidable taxi industries and they've all had to figure out how to coexist. Yeah. And and, and if you if you poll 
everyone, you know, if you poll the whole city, I'm guessing you're going to get a lot more people to support ride sharing. And yet, I think the liberals would say at a provincial level that it may have cost them the election because of the the power of the taxi industry in a couple of uh, communities, particularly Surrey. We have a we have an on a changing demographic every year. The demographic in the city is changing more and more, uh, maybe getting younger and younger, um, possibly. Uh, well, at least from a voting standpoint, potentially. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe that bodes well for ride sharing in the future. Yeah, although Amiel, nobody's out there marching in the street. That's the that seems to be the turning point that is required in order to get something as transformational as this um, over the wishes of a government. Yeah, great. No one is marching in the streets. And I guess maybe that's sort of the political disposition of Vancouver. It's, it feels weird, even though it's it, it's certainly a public service, but to be marching in the streets to support a corporate <laughs> entity that, of course, has you know had its fair share of bad press. So I, I think everyone wants uh, ride hailing ride sharing. Um, I, I think Uber is you know, such a wonderful, elegant solution. Lyft is as well. But to protest for it, it, it just seems a bit of a, it's too out there. Hmm. Does it work if we get some sort of ride-hailing solution, Ali, that is made in BC and is not Uber or Lyft? I mean, they, I think the taxi industry has tried creating something. Is that, is Cater mm-hmm. created yeah, by the taxi right, industry? Cater, yeah. yeah. So we, I mean, we've we've tried it. I'm not sure it's gone anywhere yet. I think, you know, given where, you know, the public knowledge is and given where these companies are. I mean, even Uber is Uber's advertising on TV right now. So Canadian, I mean, bank people in Vancouver are seeing those advertisements. Um, you and, know, I, I think- And it's a supply thing. I mean, I know they're going to grant another 300 licenses in, uh, in Metro Vancouver in order to deal with this, but you have territorial issues, can't pick up in the downtown and take somebody back out, say to Surrey or, or wherever they're going to go on a Friday night. There are all these things that are still impediments and it doesn't seem as if that's going to be solved which is what Uber does solve. Uber's anywhere to anywhere. I, I always thought the, the big, sort of the, the big elephant in the room was the, the amount of money that these taxi companies pay for these licenses. Yeah. I always thought that was a major sticking point for the city because they were worried uh, well, just they, at a, at a very- devalues. It yeah, devalues it instantly. Exactly. And so if they could figure out a, a solution for that and figure out a way to maybe subsidize those costs that they've already incurred, then perhaps there is a middle ground that can be- uh, it can be gained. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something we're going to be watching and waiting for, no doubt. But long time. How long yeah. time? Yeah. We'll be yeah. able to talk about this for a couple more years. It's possible. Mm. And yeah. We'll wait and see. Uh, Ali, Amiel, thank you both for joining us as always. Thanks for having us. That is Ali Pordat, CEO at Progressa, and Amiel Lake, entrepreneur in residence at E at UBC. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to BIB Today on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, read our stories at BIB.com where you can find more business news. We're going to be back tomorrow.